The goal at Chipotle was every promotion we make, every raise, every selection of an executive would be made based on, does this person make the people around themselves better, like better than anyone else? Yeah. And that's how we make promotions. We didn't want experience. What we wanted is people who had certain characteristics that you cannot train. You can't train someone to be happy. You can't train someone to be infectiously enthusiastic. You can't train them to be ambitious, motivated. Why talk about numbers when by talking about things that are a lot more motivational, you get the best numbers in the industry. We stand today. This is Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Today on the podcast, we have the former CEO of everyone's favorite Mexican grill, Chipotle. Monty Moran was the co-CEO of Chipotle, growing their valuation from a few million to 23 billion. Yes, that's 23 billion with a B over his decade with the company. They went from eight restaurants to 2,000 globally, from a few hundred employees to over 70,000. His whole philosophy of leadership is centered around, can you guess it? Love. Truly hearing, seeing, and understanding the people around him and working to make each day of the 70,000 Chipotle employees better and happier every day. If you've ever been in a Chipotle, it always seems like a happy place. I've never been in an unhappy Chipotle, and Monty is the guy that made that happen. Today, the day of this recording, October 20th, 2020, is the release of Monty's book, Love is Free and Guac is Extra, how vulnerability, empowerment, and curiosity built an unstoppable team. During his time with Chipotle, Monty met one-on-one with somewhere around the number of 20,000 Chipotle employees, making this a foundation to understand what his employees were going through and use this strategy to build a culture that took Chipotle from a regional burrito chain to a global superstar. Today, Monty shares behind the scenes of Chipotle, the decision-making process, processes they used, how he manages priorities, and the incredible culture that allowed for this rapid growth. Without further ado, let's welcome Monty to the show. Monty, how you doing, man? Good, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Good to meet you. Good. Was the intro accurate? I just want to make sure before... Yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds very nice, very flattering. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) I'm baffled by how you met with 20,000 people. So we'll talk about that later on the show. But um, first and foremost, congratulations on the launch of your book. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Love is free and guac is extra, but it's totally true, right? Love is completely free and Chipotle always charges extra for guac, right? (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Where, where'd you come up with the name? Like what? what actually, I you... didn't. Um, my, uh, my good friend, David Christman actually came up with the name Guac is Extra, Love is Free. And then, and then one of my son's friends was walking through the house and we were looking at a bunch of different, different titles for the book. And he goes, yeah, that's kind of cool, but I'd reverse it. And then, you know, I didn't think, I just didn't even say anything about it. But a week later I said to, to my friend, David, Hey, uh, uh, what do you think? Uh, Johnny said, love is free, guac is extras. He likes that idea. And David's like, Oh God, that's even better. And so it was just like that. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, then uh, the other folks we talked to about the title, everyone seemed to think that was a great title. So, and uh, people really, how old is your son? Um, so my son is, um, well, at that time, when that happened, he was 20, but he's 21 now. Uh, and it was his, it was his friend who said that. So, oh, okay, okay. his friend, Johnny Garcia. You never, you never, hey, you got to give him credit. Yeah. You never, you never know where genius ideas are going to come from, right? You've always got to stay open-minded. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What years were you at Chipotle? Well, you know, I started working with Chipotle in as a, as a lawyer for the company. I was an outside lawyer. So that was in, um, let's see, came back in 1997, 98 timeframe. Yeah. I guess a little earlier than that, but in, yeah. So I, I sort of officially became general counsel in the late nineties and was doing all, uh, was doing all the legal work for Chipotle and a lot of real estate leasing. And then they came to me for more and more and more stuff. And then I went on to become an official employee in um, uh, March of 2005. And that's when I actually became a W2 employee of Chipotle. And then and I stayed about 12 and a half years. What did they, what did they see in you that made them want to, to bring you on a team and then give you the CEO position? Well, okay. So the founder and CEO uh, in, in the, of Chipotle was Steve, is Steve Ells. And so Steve built the, built the company. And um, you know, when the company was just had about eight, eight, well, when he first started the company, he and I were talking about it and everything. And I had the first burrito at his house in Boulder when he was, before he ever started the company. And it was really cool. And uh, so he, had, he asked a bunch of us to come over and try it. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And, um, and you know, he just had a way of uh, producing food beautifully and creating a great atmosphere. And he actually built the first restaurant largely with his bare hands. And then, uh, you know, took a small loan from his dad to, to a business loan from his dad to build it. And, um, for which his dad got a stake in the company, which he never regretted. And, uh, and, and then, yeah, and then he started, he started building restaurants and, and really early on, he asked me, um, Hey, would I be interested in getting involved in helping do some of the legal work? And I was interested in doing that. So I did so. And uh, so um, I became um, CEO of my law firm uh, in Denver in, oh gosh, that'd have been, I don't know, in the mid nineties, whatever it was late nineties. And, uh, and Steve used to come over to the law firm a lot. And he went in there and he'd, he'd be like, man, this is God, such a great culture in here. Like, how did you do this? These people are happy. They're working hard. Everyone seems super stoked. <clears throat> I don't know if Steve used the word stoked, um, but that's how I remember the conversation. <laughs> um, but he, but he said, yeah, the people seem really excited. They're, they're really upbeat. They're working hard. And I said, um, uh, I said, well, yeah. And I, and he and I started to talk about how, how I did that. And, um, and so when I started describing it to him, how I built that culture, uh, he, he was like, man, why don't you come do that at Chipotle? Like, why don't you come build that same culture over here? You know? And, uh, and so over the course of like five years, you know, I, I didn't really want to go cause I loved my law firm and it was growing fast. I loved what I was doing. Um, but over several years, he sort of asked me to be more and more involved. Uh, he asked me to join all the board meetings. I started going to all the board meetings. He asked me to join the leadership team. So I went to leadership team meetings for years and I had a very strong voice in those meetings because I'm a guy with a lot of opinions and I wasn't afraid to share them. And he really appreciated that. So, so he asked me to get more and more involved. And eventually he asked me to, you know, to come on board and, and run the company. And uh, which I finally, uh, I finally agreed to do, like I say, in March of 2005. 
Did you, did the law firm continue to grow or did you? It did. It? I mean, so after I, no, after I left the law firm, uh, the founder of the law firm, Corky Messner, he stayed on as, and he became the general counsel of Chipotle. So he kind of took the position that I had had with Chipotle and I went in-house in Chipotle and became an official employee. But uh, by the time I became an employee at Chipotle, I'd already worked uh, with Chipotle, you know, for thousands of hours for many years. Oh, wow. <laughs> is it, is it still there? The original one? Um, yeah. Uh, yep, it sure is. And uh, it's, it's lasted over these many years. Had a remodel once or twice. Uh, but, but yeah, it's still there. And you came on when there was about eight stores. I'm guessing those were all in Colorado at the time. They were. And, you know, when I, when I became an employee, you know, so by the time I actually came on board as an employee, as president and COO, which is, was my first job for a couple of years until I became co-CEO. Um, but uh, when I came on board officially, there was 350 or 400 restaurants, something like that by then. So there were, there were eight when I came on as general counsel and started doing the legal work and joined the leadership team and started going to board meetings and all that stuff. Makes sense. Yeah. So you talked about how, how he came over and he saw at your law firm, everybody was happy, working hard, and, and you created this really amazing culture. And then he wanted you to do that for Chipotle. What, what are the, some, some of the things you were doing so well Monty, that, that made that awesome culture at the law firm and then transfer that over to Chipotle? Well, you know, to say I was just doing it well right away would give myself too much credit because I had to make a mistake first. Okay. So when I was at the law firm, when you, when, when a young lawyer joins a law firm, the number one goal of that lawyer is to develop a practice. So develop a book of business clients that want them to do work, right? Because if you're not doing work, you're not making money for the law firm. So I was trying to develop clients and uh, I was afraid I never would be able to. And I was really hungry to try to build a practice um, when I first came back to Denver and started practicing uh, at my law firm. And so, um, you know, I had a lot of success building a practice and all of a sudden more and more clients were coming to me and those clients were telling other people who came to me. And so I got really, really busy. And then I got really busy and then I got ridiculously busy. So I was coming in at three or four in the morning every day. And then I, you know, I was having kids and I tried to get home still at a decent time so I could see them, at, you know, at six o'clock and have dinner with them and all that stuff. So since I didn't want to get home later in the evening, I went earlier and earlier and earlier, three in the morning, two in the morning, sometimes I'm mean, ridiculously hardworking. And, and so, um, it got unsustainable uh, because Corky Messner asked me to become the CEO of the law firm at that time and, and to manage the law firm, uh, you know, which had everything to do with hiring and building a culture and, you know, guiding where the law firm went and how it grew. And so when he asked me to do that, I was like, oh my God, okay, yes, I'd love to, but you know, kind of where am I going to get the time? And so I, uh, you know, what I had to do is I had to find a way to, uh, imp you know, hire and empower a lot of young lawyers to do more of the work. And when I started doing that, you know, it went well, but then when my clients got their bills, they'd see that I wasn't the one working on their case anymore, or at least that a lot of the work was being done by junior associates. And some of them got angry. You know, they said, uh, hey, what are you doing? Are you pawning us off? I mean, you don't want, what, my work's not important to you anymore? And, and so guess how I felt when they said that? Horrible. I'm sure. No, yeah. no, it felt great. Really? Because <laughs> it's because it was. I mean, initially, right? It was flattering. Right. You know. Okay. If I if if I say, you know, Chris, I don't want to be on any podcast but yours because you're the best and you ask the best questions. I just like talking to you. I only want to talk to you. You're gonna that, feel yeah. kind of good. Yeah. You no, know, you might so. feel a little overwhelmed when I demand I'm on your podcast every single day for a year. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> we make it work. We make exactly. it work. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you. No. So, um, but anyway, so initially I felt sort of like, oh well, they love me. God, they really want me to do their work, and I felt sort of. You you know, my ego was sort of, you know, what stroked by that, right? But then I had to go, oh, my God, that's my ego talking. If I don't convince my clients to be happy, and even glad that 
young associates are doing their work instead of me, then I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to grow the firm. I'm not going to be able to manage the firm. I'm not going to be able to develop additional clients. I'm not going to be able to learn different areas of the law or progress in my own career or as a leader. And so what I had to do is realize that having my clients want me to do all the work was actually not good. And that the much better thing for me to do was to actually have the clients want the young associates to do their work. So that entailed hiring excellent people. It entailed training them to be incredibly good lawyers. It entailed giving those young lawyers client control. Okay. So in other words, I would say to you, a young lawyer, Hey, I want to introduce you directly to the client. I would say, Hey, you guys work directly together. If it, let's say, Chris, you're the young lawyer, I'd say, Hey, I'd like you to introduce you to Chris. Chris is a young superstar. He's excellent. You know, he knows how to do this. Let's say it's leasing. He knows how to do lease work super well. He's better than me at it. Work with him. And you know, you, you'd have a lower billable rate than me. So it's, it's a win-win, right? So then the clients, now that they've met Chris and they start to know Chris, they're like, oh yeah, Chris is cool. Hey man, thanks Monty for introducing me to Chris. Then I wouldn't hear from the client anymore as much. They work directly with you, which is great for me. Great for the business, great for the client. Win, 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 win. Okay. The only potential downside is that when lawyers do that, um, what happens is they have the risk of losing clients because Chris could decide, hey man, you know, I've got a bunch of clients for money. I can start my own law firm, get hundred percent of the revenue. And that's a very, very typical thing that young lawyers would do. Okay. So how did I keep you? Well, the answer is in order to keep you after giving you all that power, all that control, all that client control, the only way I'd keep you is by making sure that my law firm was absolutely the best place for you to work, that was developing you, that was where I was helping you build your practice, your own practice, where I was helping you become a better lawyer, teaching you things and paying you really well, you know? So it I had to make an environment that you'd never want to leave, okay? So that work of building that environment you'd never want to leave was the work of building a great culture. You know, the work of empowering you to be at your very best. And so if you look at me as your senior partner and you know that my interest is that I, I know you, it's like, Chris, I know you, I care about you. I picked you, I found you, I'm developing you. I'm going to make you the best lawyer you've like, you can imagine. I'm going to give you a lot of great work to do, meaningful work. I'm going to help you see how to do that work expertly. I'm going to teach you how to make great relationships with clients, build your own practice, um, help build a law firm and ultimately become a partner of the law firm. You know, you'd be like, oh, cool. I'm on, you know, I'm here. This is a good place for me. You know what I mean? And so the way to do that was to empower you. And I've got a definition of empowerment and uh, which I'm really proud of because I think it's a great definition, which is, you know, being confident in your feeling. So empowerment's a feeling, right? It's just, it's kind of like love. You can't fake it. It's there or it's not. Okay. Really, it's like, it is like love. But empowerment is feeling confident in your ability and encouraged by your circumstances such that you feel motivated and, and at liberty to fully devote your talents to a purpose. So that's my definition of empowerment. What's really cool about that definition is it is a recipe. It is a prescription. Like you can look at that definition and see if those elements are missing, that's why empowerment's missing. So there's two main elements in that. One is, um, you know, feeling confident. So confident in your ability, number one. And number two, encouraged by your circumstances. So most leaders tend to spend all of their time trying to help their team feel confident in their ability. But actually, actually that's the easy one. Okay, that just means you know what you're doing. Okay, you're getting you the right training. If you're in a restaurant, it means you've got a good sharp knife. You've been taught how to do the preparation of vegetables. You know how to do it and you're confident. Okay, the encouraged by your circumstances part of that definition is the part that most leaders struggle with. So to make, to cause someone to feel encouraged by their circumstances, you as the leader have to know them, care about them, want what's best for them, be willing to challenge them, uh, you know, and, and understand them and, care about them, right? Deeply. Like it, it has to be like a really, and that's where I, why at Chipotle, I met with 20 plus thousand people. So I'd sit one-on-one -on -one in the restaurant. Every time I'd visit a restaurant, I'd sit one-on-one -on -one with every single person there. It sometimes, sometimes only five or 10 minutes, but sometimes it was hours. 
It just depended how the conversation was going. I would learn tremendous amounts from those conversations. It was really valuable to me as the leader of the company because I'd know what we were doing well or doing poorly, et cetera, et cetera. But simultaneously, the person across the table from me would be like, wow, you know, the CEO is like taking the time to really get to know me and actually cares about me and wants to know what my experience is and, and wants me to be to help me get better and to help develop me and to help me become a manager. So that was super, super inspiring to the people I spoke with as well, because they knew that they were cared for. So at the law firm, I built that culture where every single lawyer in the firm knew that myself and the other partners, you know, cared about their development. Uh, we're going to do everything we could to help them. We're going to give them the training. We're going to give them uh, re extra resources to become great lawyers, send them to training outside the firm if necessary, give them the resources to develop business, give them a, an expense account to go out to dinner with clients or to go to a ball game with a client, whatever, but really set that associate up. So the associate felt like, man, the best ticket to success is right here at this law firm. I don't need to go anywhere. Okay, so that then with that client control, all of a sudden, I've got the best of both worlds. I've got you, Chris, my associate, developing your happy as can be. You've got tons of client control. You're talking to your associates at other firms that you know, and all of them are working on bullshit cases where they're a little cog in a big wheel. They don't really know what they're up to. They're not going to get to try a case or really have client contact, and everything has to go through the partner. And they're talking to you going, whoa, really? Like you're talking to, you know, so it's like we and it started to attract other great lawyers to our firm as well. Hey listeners, if you're looking to amplify your income and become an authority figure in your space by getting booked on podcasts that your target audience is already consuming, then listen up. Our podcast sponsor today is Podcasting You. Podcasting You helps entrepreneurs just like you generate leads for their business, increase business revenue, and become thought leaders in their niche of choice. Podcasting You takes care of finding the right podcast for you to be on, writing your pitch, booking and scheduling you on podcast, and even preparing you for each interview you do. They've helped hundreds of entrepreneurs get booked on thousands of podcasts, and they've booked people on top-rated podcasts like Andrew Warner's Mixergy, Jamie Masters' Eventual Millionaire, and the Mike Dillard Podcast. If you're interested in getting booked on more podcasts, go check out podcastingyou.com forward slash the business method. That's podcastingyou.com forward slash the business method, and they will give you $250 off your first package. I've been a guest on many podcasts, and I can tell you that I've benefited handsomely, both financially and for brand awareness from being on other people's shows. So go reach out to those guys at Podcasting You. And now back into the interview. Okay, let's go to the process of you sitting down and meeting with these 20,000 employees. So one thing, one thing I do want to like mention is that I've, I, I think I said earlier, I've never been in a Chipotle that isn't a happy place. Um, there, yeah, <laughs> so far so good, Monty. Um, and, and so I actually had a cousin of mine once. He, he said, uh, he said, Chris, do you believe in energy? And I was like, yeah. And, and I thought about it and he's like, why? And I go, well, you go into a 99 cent store and people aren't very happy and the energy's kind of low and things aren't, you know, going. But if you go into a health food cafe or Starbucks or Chipotle, like people are excited to be there. You know, they're happy for the food. They're 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 living healthy. They they've got great music in the background. The employees, I don't think I've ever met uh, an employee at Chipotle that wasn't happy too. Like there's always like a cool scene behind the bar, right, at Chipotle and people look like they're having fun. Um, and you have this quote here that I really like. It says, the success didn't come from 
uh, come by talking about sales. It came from focusing on the behaviors that lead to great sales, specifically creating empowered teams. Since empowered teams cook better food, give better service, and do all this more efficiently. So a lot of the listeners that, that hop on our show or listen to our show are digital entrepreneurs. And it's easy for us to focus on, you know, especially if we have a good background in marketing and sales, you know, what are the numbers? How can we get those sales? How many Facebook ads do we need? How many Google ads do we need to run people through the funnel and get those sales, get those sales? Um, but your focus was on um, creating empowered teams and then those sales come. Um, could you give an example, Monte, of like uh, through Chipotle um, of working through this experience like and how... Maybe maybe a time when you're you were thinking, oh, sales are down. I'm going to empower this team at this store or something like that or this region and see how that affects sales. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what. Before I joined Chipotle, the guy who went before me, um, who was the COO, um, you know, he had the for instance, he had this uh, saying. He said, "Hey, we're going to hit a million four and oh four in Denver. A million four and oh four. A million four and oh four. And it was like this mantra, right? Well, the reality is, you know, if you say a million four and oh four as an executive in the company, I mean, what do you think the people in the restaurant think about that? Even if they even hear it, well, they don't care. They don't care. I mean, come on, a million four. What does it even mean? A million four and oh four. Whatever. I'm, gonna get, I'm, I'm serving a person right now, a burrito. You know, that's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking about. You know." So, uh, you know, I think that it is a huge problem that way too many executives focus too much on dollars and cents. Um, listen, dollars and cents matter. They matter hugely, right? That's why businesses, <clears throat> you know, come to be. That's why shareholders invest. That's why, I mean, we want that. Okay, of course, we want success. But the way to get success is to, to, is to add value, to do something to help others, to make them not want to go anywhere else. Okay, just like I wanted my associates not to go anywhere else at the law firm. I wanted our customers at Chipotle not to want to go anywhere else. What does it cause them to want to go nowhere else? Well, the food's awesome. It's a friendly experience. The crew is really, really stoked and upbeat. You know, the crew feels the crew all are acting like owners, like each of them really cares about the experience that customer has. So I wanted to do everything I could at Chipotle to fan the flames of each person working there. And we had 75,000 <clears throat> 75, at the at the highest when I was there. Um, I wanted every one of those 75,000 people to have a vision that meant something to them, okay? And that vision was to be part of building a team of top performers empowered to achieve high standards, okay? Top performers empowered to achieve high standards. Now, that just sounds like cute buzzwords, but here's the deal. They, I mean, that sounds like Biden. Here's the deal. Um, uh, <laughs> I think he says that. But uh, top performer, there's a definition for that. And at Chipotle, the definition of top performer was someone who has the desire and ability to perform excellent work and through their constant effort to do so, elevates themselves, the people around them, and Chipotle. Okay, so again, there's two parts of that one, really, if you dig into, okay? Top performer, it does great work and makes other people better. Okay, so most people stop with the first bit, don't they? Most companies are like, hey, the guy does great work, he's a top performer. You know, he produces more widgets than anyone else on the line, whatever, or he, you know, brings in the most business or whatever, or she, whatever, you know? But that's only the beginning, okay? At Chipotle, to be a top performer, you had to be really effective at making the people around yourself better. That means you're, that means you're training people, it means you're pumping people up, you're helping hire great people, you're training, you know, you're, you're teaching them to be, to be better, you're teaching them how to make others better, um, and, you're, and you're really sowing the seeds of this sort of cooperative, wonderful, empowered atmosphere. And so what I did is I just wanted to make sure that, that all of our people in the restaurants had a vision of being part of a team of top performers empowered to achieve high standards. Now, when that happened, we had a name for it. It was called a restaurateur restaurant. So those managers who created specific general managers of a specific restaurant who developed a team of top performers empowered to achieve high standards would be given this very, very elite and prestigious title, restaurateur. I'll tell you, I promoted um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds uh, of restaurateurs during my career. And, and 
you had to be interviewed by either me or Steve Ellis or an officer to get restaurateur. Initially, it was just me and Steve. And you had to be one of us. So I'd go directly to your restaurant and in your restaurant, interview everyone. And that's how I got started sitting down with everyone. In order to determine, let's say that Chris, you're the general manager, okay? I would say, when I go to your store, you are the least important person for me to meet, okay? That sounds funny, right? But if I meet your team, and at Chipotle, the team was maybe an average of about 25 people that worked for you. If I met whoever was working that day, let's say it's 10 or 12 people, and I sat down with those 10 or 12 people and found out what their life was like, how excited they were, how passionate they were, how good they were, how, how, what did the restaurant operation look like? Was it sparkling clean? Was the food perfect and hot and delicious? Was the customer service great? Was the throughput fast? You know, when I looked at every aspect of the operation, they would be reflected through your team members. If you weren't there that day because you were out sick or because, you know, whatever, you're on sabbatical or it was just your day off, I would, I would learn everything I needed to know and more about you, right? And, and I'd talk to them, hey, how is Chris as a manager? You know, and I'd go in a place and sometimes someone might go, you know, Chris is, um, he's pretty good. What does that mean? means there's a hesitation there, right? It's, yeah. You got it. You yeah. got it. And so I didn't listen to the words. I listened to the hesitation. I go, oh, well, why? You said pretty good. So what is it about Chris that you don't like? I mean, and it wasn't like I was trying to stir up gossip. I would just get him saying, well, you know, Chris sometimes yells a lot or you know, he throws shit, you know? <laughs> but anyway. I throw the chips and the not. guac around. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He throws guacamole around. No, but I would learn through people's, you know, because I would learn there's a very big difference between Oh, Chris is really good. I really like him. Or, oh my God, Chris is great. I love Chris. Oh, he's so awesome. He cares so much about us. I love him. Oh, he, every time he's here, it's like, it's so fun and he makes it fun and he, and he teaches us so much. He really cares about, you know what? I had this problem with my mom and I was really down and he noticed and I came in that day, I was down and he sat with me and he, what's going on? How's your mom? And uh, I mean, if you hear something like that, you're like, wow, Chris is a special manager. You know, it's obvious, right? It just comes right through. So in these interviews, that's why I'm sitting down and talking to everyone. And that's why it mattered less that I talked to Chris. Now, I would love to talk to Chris because when Chris built a great team like that, I'd be stoked to sit down with Chris and go, Hey, Chris, man, you built an awesome team. And I'd always say like, how'd you do it? And the answer was, I'll tell you what, it was always the same different words, but the answer always was you pick top performers and made sure everyone on the team was a top performer, meaning they were, did great work and made others better. Okay. Then you empowered them. So they were confident in their ability and they were encouraged by their circumstances. Why were they encouraged by their circumstances? Because you, Chris knew them, loved them, cared about them, understood them, drove them to be better, wouldn't stop till they were at their best. And they knew that in your hands, they were going to achieve greatness, you know? And so I could tell all that without ever meeting you. Now, of course, I usually did meet you, the general manager, but even if I didn't, I, I'd be fine. And I would promote you even if you weren't there. I mean, I would send out, you'd find out in an email, you got promoted sometimes. Now that was unusual because usually the managers were there, but I will tell you like without, almost without exception, almost without exception of the maybe 500 or 600 restaurateurs I promoted, they all cried Really, when I gave them a oh, promotion. Wow. I mean, and the whole team broke down in tears, the whole team. And many, 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 if not most, told me that it was the single most important thing that had ever happened to them in their life, the greatest achievement in their life. Now you might say, oh God, it's a fast food restaurant. How could it be such a big deal? No, it was like my friend David Chrisman likes to say, it was like a cult, but in a good way. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, and, and, and because people really cared about each other. And when I promoted the general manager, let's say that I had had a customer in there. I said, close your eyes. I'm about to make a promotion. And then after I make the promotion, I want you to tell me who I promoted. And let's say, Chris, you're the GM. I'd go up and go, Chris, I reach out my hand. Congratulations. You're a restaurateur. And you're like, oh my God. And you'd start crying, but everyone else would start crying and hugging you. And then if I said to the customer, open your eyes, I'm not saying I did this, but if you would have, if I said to the customer, tell me who got promoted, they would have no idea because everyone on the team looked like they were the one who got wow, the promotion. Wow, how cool. I mean, and this is every time. Like you couldn't even tell who got the promotion because you know, the manager was so proud of the team 
and the individual team members because they knew that that's how they got there. That's how I interviewed. I interviewed the team. And then the team was proud of the manager and the team was proud of the team. You know, the kitchen manager was proud of the service manager, the service manager was proud of the apprentice, the apprentice was proud of the, and it was just this mutual achievement. And so since it was such a mutual achievement and that was reflective of this idea of a, a, a very principal part of the culture that I built at Chipotle. And I said this on my first day working at Chipotle to a big group of area managers. I said, each of us will be rewarded based on our effectiveness in making the people around us better. And the goal at Chipotle was we, every promotion we'd make, every raise, every selection of an executive would be made based on does this person make the people around themselves better, like better than anyone else. And that's how we make promotions. So I wouldn't make promotions just on, hey, does this person know how to operate at Chipotle better than anyone else? Well, that doesn't really matter if they can't train it, teach it, and build it as a, uh, as a culture in the restaurant. So, so that was the deal. And I'll tell you, and so I didn't focus on profit or uh, you know, money or margin or food cost or labor. I mean, of course we did. There were systems in place to make sure that labor costs were efficient and food costs were, were, were accurate, were the right amount. Um, but I didn't focus on that and talk about it much, not even to analysts. I mean, of course, in the analyst meetings, you know, our CFO would go through those numbers and, this, and the numbers were consistently a home run. So why talk about numbers when by talking about creating great customer service, delicious food, a really wonderful atmosphere that's warm and inviting, um, that's what matters. That's what customers fight to get in the door for. And, when they're, and then when they come in the door, obviously you gotta go quick enough to get them through the line. And that was our throughput initiative, which was the number one operational initiative the whole time I was at Chipotle. And we got people through very, very quickly. And that made our sales go crazy because you know, obviously our big lines at lunch or dinner, not at three or four in the afternoon, three or four in the afternoon, it's you know, um, usually not as long a line, right? But at noon, you, you gotta go super, super fast because you don't want customers waiting 10, 15 minutes because that's not fun. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we, we achieved unbelievably fast throughput. Uh, we achieved, we had, our customer service scores went through the roof year after year um, and our food scores went through the roof and it was just really, really wonderful. And it ended up being, of course, the numbers spoke for themselves. You know, why talk about numbers when by talking about things that are a lot more motivational, you get the best numbers in the industry, you know? So yes, numbers matter, but you don't get numbers by talking about numbers any more than, you know, if you want to win the lottery, Chris, you don't win the lottery by saying, oh, I hope I win the lottery. I hope I win the lottery. We got to win the lottery. Hey, let's win the lottery. I hope I win the lottery. If you want to win the lottery, the best way to win the lottery, buy a lot of tickets, okay? The best way to, to get a lot of money in a, in, a, in a restaurant chain, give awesome food for a great value with great customer service. Let the people come in the door. The numbers take care of themselves. It's incredible, Monte. Um, I'm curious about the hiring process for the general managers. So you're looking for very unique individuals, right? And um, I think you mentioned that you don't look for degrees necessarily. You don't look at, like, you kind of look for attitude. And, um, and so I imagine you probably weren't hiring all the general managers, but you trained some, some, some of your team to hire the general managers, right? So what were those traits to look for? Because everybody's looking for superstars employees, you know, what are, what are the things that, that you guys would look for to find those key general managers that you thought would eventually become a rest, restaurant, is that the word restaurant? A re restaurateur. Restaurateur. Yes. Restaurant tour. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say, yeah. restaurant tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so so yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So when I started at Chipotle, what our HR team was doing was going out and hiring people with fast food experience. Let me ask you, what's fast food experience? What does that mean? First thing that comes to my mind is somebody that worked at McDonald's. Okay, sure. So good, perfect. Do I want someone with that experience necessarily? Is that an important experience? Is there something that they've got that no one else has that I need in my restaurant? Maybe a little know-how, but probably... 
Probably not, I would guess. Yeah, and maybe, arguably, maybe even some really bad habits. Okay, maybe they <laughs> maybe they leaned on the counter. Maybe they said stuff like, "When someone said thank you, they said no problem." Next customer, you know. Uh -huh. um, so, um, you know, we fast food experience is not important to us. Uh, in fact, I, we came to say on one of our ads, we actually said, "No experience preferred," because you know it says no experience required. We actually said no experience preferred. We didn't want experience. What we wanted was people with the right characteristics to be great leaders and great managers, okay? More importantly, leaders, okay? And there's a big difference between a manager and a leader. Even when we called our general managers, managers, that we wanted them to be leaders. And that's why we called them restaurateurs when they reached an elite status. But anyway, yeah, so instead of hiring, so, so what I said when I went in there is, hey, let's stop hiring for experience because you can train experience. And in fact, no matter what experience you have in a restaurant, we're gonna retrain you because we want it to be done our way. We want it to be done in what we thought was a better way. Um, so we didn't want experience. What we wanted is people who had certain characteristics that would make it most likely that they could be very, very successful as a great manager or great leader. And we called those things the 13 characteristics. I've got them listed in my book, but they are things that you can't train, that you cannot train, okay? So we want to hire for the stuff you can't train, right? Like if I wanted to get a, just to make a silly analogy, if I wanted an English, Spanish, Spanish, English interpreter, one of the things that I don't want to train is I don't want to train them to speak Spanish and English. I want them to already do that. Right. Well, at Chipotle, I want what are the kind of characteristics that, that I want that you can't train? I mean, you can train someone to speak Spanish, but it takes years. Um, but you can't train someone to be happy. You can't train someone to be infectiously enthusiastic. You can't train them to be ambitious, motivated. Uh, you can't train them. I mean, you can do things that will, that will ignite their motivation, but you can't pick someone, you know, uh, you can't make someone happy unless you're a psychiatrist and you work on it for like 30 years. And we didn't have 30 years or psychiatrists. But so, you know, the 13 characteristics were things like happy, polite, respectful conscientious, infectiously enthusiastic, um, high energy, motivated, ambitious, you know, presentable. I mean, things like that, that you can tell instantly in an interview, like as soon as someone sits down, you're like, oh man, this person seems nice, seems high energy, seems motivated, you know, just right away, right? So if we pick people with those characteristics, it was a piece of cake to train them to do a great job at Chipotle. You know, um, you know what we did at Chipotle while incredibly delicious wasn't that complicated. You know, once you learn the pieces of it, you can replicate it obviously very well. So, um, so uh, yeah, so we didn't we didn't care about experience or degrees or any of that. At first they did, and uh, then after I got there, I wanted to change that completely. And in fact, I actually also wanted to stop hiring managers from off the street. Um, I wanted to hire them from crew positions at Chipotle. So that's another major thing I talk about in the book, is how we went to where we hired everyone from within because the people who came in as crew, what do you know about a crew person after they've worked there, even if they've only worked there six months? Well, you know, they show up on time, you know, they care about what they're doing, you know, they're conscientious, you know, they're high energy, you know, that they show up ready to work, you know, that they're happy, you know, that they're motivated, whatever it is. Okay. You know, that they're, they've got these characteristics. And when you turn those people into managers, they're incredibly loyal. In fact, I learned when I announced that we were going to hire everyone from within before announcing that I went back and looked, I always noticed that the best managers were ones that were trained from within. And there were very few of them. Okay. Most people were hired off the streets through an MIT program, which I went through myself when I started at Chipotle. And that's how I knew, man, at the end of the MIT program, even though I was really motivated and a very educated person, um, at the end of the program, I wasn't going to be as good a manager as some of the people who just trained me, who were crew people who were making 10, 12 bucks an hour at that time. Well, why should I have been their manager? Why, why didn't we just train them to be the manager? You know, and if we had trained them the same amount of time I trained, they'd have been a better manager because they really knew you know, the blocking and tackling, so to speak, how to prep vegetables, how to clean the restaurant, how to calibrate the equipment, how to cook the food, how to serve the food, how to run the line, how, you know, et cetera, how to run the cash register, you name it. They knew that stuff way better than me. Even if I trained hard, they've been doing it for months or years. So I said, hey, within two years, we're going to hire all of our managers from within. We're going to stop hiring people from off the street 
turning them into general managers and we're gonna start hiring from within. Now, keep in mind that when we had this MIT program and we were hiring managers off the street, you know, the vast majority of them were white people coming into our crew, which was at that time, a vast majority Hispanic. Okay, because Chipotle, you know, being a Mexican restaurant, they get attracted a lot of Hispanics and they were amazing. They were terrific workers and they loved it. But we had a majority, a vast majority, when I started at Chipotle of workers were Hispanic. So you have all these white people coming to train to be managers of Hispanic crew. It didn't make sense to me. So during my tenure at Chipotle, we went from having a mostly white crew, I mean, excuse me, a mostly white management team who frankly was mediocre to having an awesome management team that was mostly Hispanics and women. I mean, it was more women than men and more ultimately more Hispanics than whites, just because that was reflective of the people who came from crew because that's where we train people from. So, um, and their managers were way, way, way better because they were committed to Chipotle. They had been a crew there. They had done everything and they lived it and loved it. And so when they became managers, they were so enthusiastic and they knew how to train other people and they knew how to make it exciting for other people because they had, they had been there a long time and worked really hard and knew the culture. Um, you mentioned that uh, you had more female managers than male. Um, I'm just curious, is there is there some natural traits that you would see in the management styles of females that you didn't necessarily see? In I, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think so. I just think that a lot of um, the female crew people who had worked for us when we started opening it up, that they were going to be our future managers. That is to say, crew people were going to be our future managers. I just think a lot of uh, of the female managers we had just were they were really enthusiastic about it. They were very ambitious. They're like, Hey, I want to do this. And they went for it and they made unbelievably terrific managers. You know, I won't, I'm not going to say that there's, you know, that women or men are either that either sex is better at being a general manager. I think a good general manager always has the characteristics of being somebody who is really cares and is tremendously empowering of their team and picks good people, you know, and uh, anyone who's got these characteristics, anyone who's really motivated and ambitious and has a vision can be, you know, can learn to do that. And so, um, no, I just, man, we had just so many wonderful, um, so many wonderful people at the crew level. I mean, like 75,000, right? Those are people you can choose from all them to be your future managers. And I remember 2015, I think it was, that we promoted 10,500 managers at Chipotle from crew in one year. So it's a huge amount. Yeah. So I know you talk, Monty, in the book um, about leadership and how it starts with love. Um, and that a true leader understands that everyone has the same fundamental desire to be seen, known, and understood, valued, mm -hmm. and loved. Mm -hmm. And so when you are implementing um, you know, training and then promoting people within Chipotle, um, is this is this a key foundation that you were telling them? Like like um, this starts with love, like we want love in Chipotle or, or what was the, the, how did the communication go through that process? You know, I didn't, I didn't throw the word love around a ton. I think a lot of people did in our restaurants, you know, I'd come in and go, oh, I love it here and I love him and I love my manager. And I love it. I would hear love all the time. You know, I, I didn't want my words to be so esoteric. So I tried to be much more definite. I tried to say, hey, look, when I go into a restaurant, what I'm looking for is I want to make sure that every single employee in the restaurant is a top performer. Okay. Now what that means, as I said, is that they do great work themselves. They're very good at what they do, but also that they empower the people around them or, or they, they make the people around them better. Okay. And so that's number one, they're all top performers. Number two, I wanted to make sure that the team was empowered to deliver very high standards. Okay. And empowerment, again, confident in their ability, encouraged by their circumstances, confident in their ability meant training. Okay. Encouraged by their circumstances meant that the manager really, really, really cared for them. Now by cared for them, again, I mean, sits down with them, gets to know them, understands them, challenges them, wants them to be at their best. Now, if you look at those last those things I just mentioned, the last 10 seconds, 
those are things that you do when you love someone. That's what you do. You know what I mean? So the word love just sort of pops out the other side. I didn't say you've got to love them. I didn't say you need to love them because I thought people might be a little bit like, whoa, man, I don't know. Hey, man, let's get a little. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say you have to love them, but I would say you have, to, you have to get to know them. You get to deeply understand them. You have to care about them. You have to want what's best for them. You have to, you have to be enthusiastic about watching them grow and blossom. Like you have to get like your kicks out of that, like be passionate about their growth. Well, anyone who does all that for someone, yeah, you love them. That's what's going on. But I didn't use the word. I didn't use the word. I used it for the title of the book because it's appropriate and it is what was happening. But I figured that I'd let the word love come from the crew to, towards each other, towards me. You know, I'm not shy. To, I'm not shy to use it, but I didn't think that it was an, a prudent business word to go in and say, hey, love that guy. You know, what does that mean? It's a lot. It means a lot more when I say, hey, Chris, have you gotten to know uh, Bill, your crew guy who started yesterday? Have you sat down with him yet? Oh, no, I haven't yet, Monty. I will. Well, Chris, you should sit down with him. He's his first day. He'd, it'd be great to sit down with him and get to know him. Yeah, okay, okay. But if you sit down with him and then you're like, yeah, I've gotten to know that guy and I know that I know what makes him tick. I know what he likes. I know what his hobbies are. I know that he loves skateboarding. You know, I think he, and he loves to, you know, in his free time, he likes to carve wood, you know, and, and uh, you know. So, I mean, you think about the show Undercover Boss, for example. You know, I, it's funny. This show Undercover Boss, I've seen it a few times. What happens? You know, you get, it, inevitably, you get the boss, he puts on the mustache and the, and the, the mullet and the hat and whatever it is or, the, or whatever they do to dress these people up. But he goes into camouflage, disguise, right? And then they put him in one of his, his uh, retail units and no one knows who it is. And they're always saying, oh, the boss is an asshole and don't worry, who cares? We don't care, this place doesn't do any bit. You know, basically the boss is finding out all this incredibly surprising stuff about the business and, the, and it's, that's what makes the show fun. There was a man who suggested that I go on that show once when I was back in Washington, DC, because he had ties to the people who ran that show. And I said, oh, there's, it's pointless. You couldn't, there's no disguise you could put me in where people wouldn't know who I was, number one. And number two, you're never gonna surprise me because I'm in these stores and it's like, I know these people. And it's, it's absurd, the idea. For a boss, a CEO to actually be surprised to find that their employees don't really care about, you know, selling radios or whatever it is that they're doing, you know, that should not be a surprise to you. You got to know that stuff. That's your responsibility. You know, it was my responsibility to know what is it that our crew love about the job? What do they hate about the job? What do they love about serving our food? What do they hate about serving our food? What do they think is, are the best things we sell? What do they think they're, they're not, not as proud of? What do they think about the ingredients when they come in? What do they think about suppliers, this supplier, that supplier? You know, do they like avocados, you know, at the, you know this avocado or that avocado, you know? Um, uh, you know, do they want to, you know, if they've got, you, you got to know what they think about all those aspects of the business. Do they like this grill or do they like the new grill we're, we're using? Do they like the, the new steamer for the tortillas or do they think the old one is better? You got to know that stuff. That's critical to your business, man. You got 2000 stores serving food with the, this equipment every day. So an undercover boss, you know, you got a bunch of guys getting basically busted for not knowing anything about what their business really is, what's really going on in their business. I was the, I was the opposite of that guy. I was the not undercover because everyone knew who I was, but I was in the stores all the time and I knew what the deal was, you know? And so, um, and I knew when our employees, you know, had, had a lot of pride and, uh, and, and boy, they had a ton of pride because they knew that we really cared about, about yeah. that. Well, you also mentioned too, I don't think you've used a specific word, but I think in a book it talks about, um, the importance of vulnerability as a leader. So I'm curious yeah. uh, how, how you communicated or taught this idea, because, um, this isn't, being a leader, being a vulnerable leader, I don't think is a norm. Um, and no. especially with society, they don't see leaders as vulnerable. They see them as, you know, strong, 
willed, whatever. But vulnerability, you know, right. takes a certain amount of strength for sure. So I'm curious how you communicated this to the general managers, managers in the team, and even the corporate team, um, the importance of being vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a few ways. I mean, one was uh, just by telling them when I went into the restaurant, but big, a big, big way was to do it by example. You know, I mean, when I went into the restaurants, crew people would always go like, man, I can't believe you're the CEO. I didn't think you'd be like this. And when I said, I said, what do you mean like this? And you know what they'd say? They'd say like, well, so like, like normal, like you're just a guy, you're just a guy, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just a guy, you know? And they'd be like, whoa, you know? And, uh, and so basically I exhibited that. And, and, you know, I would tell people my faults all the time. I'd tell them my shortcomings. I'd tell them, God, I'm kind of sad today because this or that. I just, you know, I would just expose my heart to them, just expose my heart to them. You know, at the very beginning of my book, I talk about one of our managers and she was wonderful, but she had initially, she struggled because she was trying to show her team how strong she was, that she deserved the job, that she was in control. You know, as soon as you think you deserve to be someone's leader, you're off track. You know, being someone's leader is an honor, it's a privilege, and it's an opportunity to try to help them be at their best. That's, it's, a, it's an honor. You know, it's like when you get to be someone's leader, you are someone else's placing some a significant piece of their life in your hands, their future, you know, their, where, where they're going with their life, how they grow, how they feel every day at work. All those things are in your hands as their leader. That's an honor. You know, that's a responsibility, you know, and if you start thinking that, you know, you're a hot, you're hot shit, you know, and, and that you can just bark orders and stuff and you don't have to care about your people, you're off the track and your company's going to go off the track quickly, or at least not, or at least not ever achieve what it's capable of. So um, I just, I, I just felt so lucky every single day that I got to be with these people. They were wonderful. They were smart. They were beautiful. They were kind. They were compassionate. They were caring. They were a lot less messed up in their head than most executives, quite frankly, right? Because they were younger people who had, you know, they, they were, hadn't lived as long and life was new to them. And they're like, man, this vision's cool. I want to be part of this. They were excited. They hadn't become jaded. And, you know, I wanted to exhibit the kind of vulnerability that I wanted them to exhibit to each other, you know, so I just led by example, you know, and, and when I would go out into the field and, and go into restaurants, I would also go in with our area managers and, and uh, team directors and regional directors who had either tens or hundreds of stores that were reported to them. <clears throat> and, and they would see the way I interacted with the crew and they would see that I would, so I would cry with the crew. Sometimes they'd say, tell me a sad story and I'd cry because it was sad. You know, I mean, I was, I was myself. You know, I opened my heart to them and, and I told everyone in the company, all the leaders, hundreds and hundreds of them that we had in the field, um, you know, you know, you've got to open your hearts to these people. If you try to show them that you're strong and you know it all, guess what that says to them? It says you don't need them. You don't need them. So if you can think about even in just a normal marriage, right, a husband and wife, if the husband feels like the wife's got it all under control and doesn't need him, he feels kind of lackluster, down, doesn't feel loved vice versa. Same. If, if the husband has it all under control and the wife uh, doesn't feel like she's adding any value or the husband doesn't need her, it doesn't feel very good. When, you know, when a husband and wife uh, know that they need each other and, and they can count on each other and they have each other's back and that, you know, one will pick up where the other left off, you know, that creates a really good marriage. Right. Um, and so with any relationship um, or any partnership or, you know, uh, boyfriends and girlfriends or best friends, or even just friends, you know, you, if you have a friend who doesn't need you at all, you know, you're super smart, super good looking, you know, knows it all. Uh, you know, you might be like, hey, he's super smart. He's super good looking. He knows it all, but you won't feel that you're very important to him. Um, but if you, but if he's has those characteristics, if you're fortunate enough to have those characteristics, but also is sometimes come to you and goes, man, God, can I talk to you about something? There's something just got me down. Maybe you can help me as soon as you, you know, and I talk in my book just about this, this asking for help, being subordinate, 
You know, there is so much to be gained in this life, in this world by being subordinate. And what I mean by that isn't that you have to be wimpy or weak, not at all. Subordinate does not mean wimpy or weak, okay? What I mean is, you know, if you go into a room and you say, and you walk in and you go, hey, I know all the answers. Everyone's gonna shut up and go, okay, what are the answers? But if you go into the room and say, hey, people, you know, I, I'm really glad to be here. Hey, how are you? Nice to see you. I'm Monty, I'm your new president, their new CEO of Chipotle, whatever. Hey, you know what? Um, we got a great restaurant company here, but there's some issues that I want to talk about. You know, we, you know, we're having troubles with this, or having, or, you know, um, you know, our stores sometimes aren't as clean as they should be, or whatever. You know, hey, how can we solve that, you guys? I really want your ideas. How can we solve it? I need your help. I really need you guys because I can't do it all. You know, well, you're going to get some hands going up. Hey, I've got an idea. You're going to draw people out. Okay, so part of leadership is being strong, having a vision. In, in helping impart that vision, um, you know, being confident, having people see, hey, this guy or woman is going to help me get to where I need to go. Like they've got a vision for my future. I like their vision for my future. I want to be part of that vision. And I trust that, that this woman or this man, you know, has my best interests at heart, at heart and will help me get there. Okay. So part of it's that, right? That's part of what everyone knows that it, that's a good leadership. But what fewer people know is that good leadership also means that that person has to sometimes come in and go, you know, I don't know. I don't, we got a problem here. I'm not sure the best way to fix it. I need you guys to help me. I can't do this all myself. We got to, we got to solve this as a team. Well, then that team's going to look up from their, you know, iPads or, or, or iPhones and go, oh, you need me? You know, and just think about it. if you walk down the street, Chris, and you're in a big, busy city, walking by, you're in New York City, and you're walking by all these men and women in business attire and all that stuff. And everyone looks really busy. Let's just say you say to someone, hey, sir, sir, excuse me, what time is it? What's the odds that person won't stop and say, oh, it's, um, it's quarter of 10. You know, that's a, I mean, some of them might say, hey, I'm, I'm too busy, but you ask them the question, you gotta be pretty big asshole not to say, oh, it's quarter of 10, even if you're in a hurry, right? <laughs> it depends on the city too. Austin people do that all the time. New York City, maybe not so Yeah, right, right. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I think that, you know, but people, if you ask someone for help, there's a, a very strong human desire to be of help to be of service. I talk about a story in my book, you know, where I was, uh, you know, a dorky uh, insurance adjuster for farmers, farmers insurance. I say dorky because I had to wear these uh, short sleeve white shirts with a necktie, a button up white shirts, a short sleeve, you know, it was kind of like, you know, in LA walking around. But I remember one time I was looking for a certain address in this quote unquote bad neighborhood in LA. And while I was looking for the address, I was looking at the houses and one of the houses, uh, one of the houses I was looking at had a bunch of guys on the front porch, big, strong guys. Um, you know, they were listening to really loud music and they were, you know, partying in the morning, you know, it was like 11 a.m. or 12. Um, and these guys, you know, boom, 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 loud music. And I'm looking at their house and one of the guys yells at me, what are you looking at? Hey, what are you looking at? And I go, oh, actually, I was just looking at the address behind you. Did you know where uh, 5463? I forgot the address, but do you know where 5463 is? And the guy was like, Oh yeah, man. It's just, uh, it's down there half a block. And, you know, and, and all of a sudden, since I asked him a question, I put myself in the subordinate position. I put him in the dominant and helpful position. I laid myself at his mercy in a little way, right? Like, Hey man, I'm just needing some help. I'm trying to find an address. And soon as I was that subordinate figure, instead of what are you looking at? It was like, Oh yeah, man, it's right down there. Hey, have a good day. Have a good day. And it was like, I was surprised he didn't offer me a beer because it was that cordial. You know, that story is an important story, right? Cause we can all relate to it. That, that, as human beings, we tend, everyone tends to be threatened when they meet someone new just a little bit. They might not know they're threatened, but there's a, that initial thing. Like when you call me today, oh, what's Chris going to be like? Is he going to be nice? Is he going to be throw hard balls at me and try to make me look like an idiot? I don't know. You know, so I might be a little nervous. So when I first meet you, as soon as you're like, hey, Monty, yeah, this can be a casual thing. Oh, hey, Chris, you know, in the first few seconds, there's all this, this trust begins to build immediately. Like, wham, 
or it doesn't, if it's a bad, I mean, sometimes you're like, oh crap, this isn't going to go well, but you know, right away, you know, and part of that is, is like, you know, you're saying, Hey, I'm glad you're on the show. Thank you. And when you say thank you, that is a subordinate position because you're thanking me for my time. And I say, Oh no, thanks, Chris. Thanks for your interest in, you know, what I'm doing or my book. And, and so I'm subordinating back and that's like, Oh, cool. You know, like, Hey, we're both saying that, you know, you know, we, this is something we want to do, you know? And so that's very disarming. So that kind of subordination or, you know, Hey, I, I'd love to have your help. You know, thank you. Thank you for helping me. You know, well, that just makes the other person come towards you instead of away from you. You know, you can just see it in the animal kingdom, right? You know, it's like animals that are threatened or cornered. What they, do they do? tense up like, or yeah, tense up or yeah, lash out. You know, everyone says like, like, don't corner like a rabid dog, right? Duh. You're like you don't corner like a rabid dog. It's going to go. Arr. But if you say to the, but if you put your hand to the dog, like in a really subordinate position and like put it backwards and like hold it up to their mouth, they're like, oh, this guy wouldn't do that unless he was nice because he's letting me bite him and I'm not going to bite him, you know? And I talk in my book about how my dog does this. He goes on the trail. My, she, my dog's name is Chelsea, uh, Cocker Spaniel, but she lays on her back on the trail and puts her paws up like this and lays on her back. Whenever a dog comes up, totally on her back, like with her neck wide open, like these dogs could kill her, you know? And the dogs always go like up to her and like liquor. And then all of a sudden she jumps up and then she becomes the dominant one chasing them and playing and barking and having fun. But she starts out with this impossible to misunderstand bit of communication, which is like, I'm not here to mess with you. I'm just a little cute dog that rolls over on my back. Like you don't need to, you know, you don't need to bite me or to growl and they don't and it works. And we, as people need to do a lot more of that. Yeah. It's the power of being a subordinate. I love that. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed I've, I've seen either YouTube videos and heard stories about people when attacked by animals or, um, or, the threat of a, a, an attack is coming up that people just lie down. And if they yeah. just lie there, then the animal senses no threat. They may sniff them, lick right. them. If they're really hungry, they may try to bite them, I'm sure. But I mean, if they're starving, they're going to get a real problem. But no, but generally, if, if it's because they're threatened that they're attacking, if you remove the threat, they'll stop. Yeah, exactly. I like that. I love that concept. Um, okay. So uh, one of the things I did want to touch on, Monty, is, is, is the growth strategies of Chipotle. And so you guys went from basically when you started interacting with Chipotle, eight stores to 2,000 stores, 100, 100 employees or so to 75,000-ish. And, um, you know, people are always thinking about growth. It's always in the back of the, their mind. And, and we touched on sales numbers and uh, creating sales goals earlier and what you decided to focus on. But it, what were the strategies you guys implemented um, and maybe some of the infrastructure you created in order to maintain that rapid growth over, over the 12 years or so that you were working with them? Well, the, sing the single biggest strategy you need in order to grow like a retail concept like Chipotle quickly is you need to be training enough excellent people to go open that new location. Okay. So that's, that's the hardest part, right? Cause you can, you know, we had a great real estate team. We took advantage of great real estate software. The McDonald's uh, organization actually helped us early on to get involved with, to get some of this dynamite software, which would tell you about, you know, daytime populations, traffic counts, demographic information, you know, incomes, so forth. Um, and so we had some really good software that would help us pick great real estate, right? Then we had a really great team that that um, that once we picked the real estate would would build restaurants really really well. And it, initially, maybe not that efficiently, but over time we increased and increased and increased the efficiency with which uh, we built our restaurants. Uh, then we'd have great great you know we'd pick the best equipment that would last the best, and we'd test equipment and make sure we had the best equipment. So all that stuff's easy. I don't mean it's not hard work, but I mean it's 
like anyone would figure out it's better to build a store that lasts longer, not less long and buy better equipment, not worse equipment. Right. So you just, you do that. And it's very, very, uh, it's very intuitive. And, and so we had really good teams that could find great real estate, build great restaurants and, and select uh, the places that we'd have the most luck having a great business uh, model. But the biggest thing we needed to do was make sure to staff those restaurants with excellent people from day one so that that initial experience that a customer would have coming into it, even a brand new Chipotle would be excellent from day one. Because the biggest advertising we had at Chipotle, the biggest marketing we had by far was word of mouth. You know, we only spent about 1.5% of revenue on marketing, which is not very much for, you know, for an organization like ours. And, you know, we did some good with that marketing. I think it was helpful, but it wasn't anywhere near as helpful as customers walking out and saying, Hey, I love this place. My God, they're great. The food's awesome. The service is great. God, they're fast. And, you know, in fact, just to give you one example, when I started at Chipotle, our lines were really, really, really long. And I worked very hard to increase our throughput to diminish those lines. Well, of course, as our lines got shorter, they just filled up again with more people. And then we went faster and then they just got longer with more people. But, you know, what, what started happening at the back of our lines is the people who were new to Chipotle would get in the end of a line and they'd get nervous. They'd start maybe shuffling their feet and acting like they were going to leave. And the people the customer, not our people, but the customers at the end of the line would be like, hey, don't worry, it goes really fast. They're really fast. So our people actually started singing our praises for moving so quickly. And the word got out, don't worry. I know it looks long. You'll be through it in six minutes, five minutes, four minutes. And so that was really cool. But again, to get back to your question about growth and, and um, you know, sort of leveraging and, and growing the brand, you know, this is why this concept of each of us being rewarded based on our ability to make the people around us better was so important. Because if we brought people in who quickly trained others, quickly developed others to be uh, future leaders of the company, managers, kitchen managers, service managers, general managers, apprentices, what have you, the faster we could develop those people, the more we could put those superstars into a new restaurant, okay? And that restaurant would, would run really, really, really well, you know? And of course, there's a lot of other things about growing. You have to have a really good um, distribution network and an infrastructure that can deliver the ingredients each day to each store or three times a week or whatever, whatever is appropriate for that location. Um, you know, we just had a really strong team in, in our corporate office that uh, did a great job with that stuff and, and worked on the logistics and work on making sure that the trucks aren't you know, empty on their way back. And so we were always trying to, to lessen the cost of shipping things. And so we could spend more of that money on great ingredients. And, but really growing a brand is, is the hardest part of growing a brand is making sure that your culture is incredibly healthy and that you're developing lots and lots and lots of new people who can lead new restaurants or new retail organizations or new locations of whatever business you're in. I want to ask you personally, Monty, um, you spent all this time and, and a significant amount of your life creating top performers for Chipotle. What do you do in your own personal life to, to make sure that you're a top performer on a regular basis? Well, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've got some inherent advantages that are disadvantages, depending on how you look at it. And one is that I'm intensely self-critical, um, really, really, really hard on myself. And, and it's no fun. I'm not, I'm not, saying this is a good idea to anyone else. Um, not, yeah, I'm just really critical. So a lot of time, you know, I just, I'm like, man, is the way I'm spending my time the best way to spend my time? You know, that type of thing. So I'm really hard on myself. So I'm, I do a lot of self-reflecting. Um, but another thing I try to do is I try to do something to, to allow my mind to be free every day, go for a swim, go for a run, you know, uh, take a walk, you know, take a hike, you know, but do something usually that's cardiovascularly difficult enough that it kind of breaks me free of my little problems. And, you know, the problem becomes, God, I'm breathing really hard. <laughs> so it brings me into the present. So I think a big part of this, try to be present, you know, try to actually be present and, be like, and just and understand and feel the feelings you're feeling. 
understand if you're nervous, you go, wow, I'm nervous. You know, understand if you have anxiety, wow, I feel some anxiety. I wonder what that's about. But check in, you know, with yourself and try to check in without so much judgment. Uh, I tend to judge, oh God, I'm, I'm anxious. Why am I anxious? Why do I'm anxious all the time? But how about just, hey, I feel a little anxious and that's okay, you know, because I'm a person and I'm pretty hard on myself and it's not surprising I'll be angry. It's not a great surprise I'm anxious. Just, I'll just understand that I'm anxious right now and stop beating myself up, up, up about it, you know? So that's one thing. That's one thing I do. You know, another thing is I just like to write a lot. So I write a lot of poems, you know, I write a lot of, I call them poems. They're not, they usually don't rhyme, but you know, I write these sort of things about what I'm experiencing, these little bits of writing. And I try to write a lot and just kind of put that stuff aside. Um, I, and I, I've got some things I really love to do, like I love to cook, you know, so I cook a lot of really good meals and that sort of grounds me a little bit, slows me down, forces me to focus on something in the, very, in the present moment. But I think it's about, about being present. And another thing that's hugely important to me in my life, and increasingly so with each passing week, month and year, is just authenticity. You know, I, I choose to not spend any of my time being inauthentic, not being who I really am, pretending I'm something I'm not. And, and I choose to spend my time around people who are really authentic and aren't trying to pretend they're something they're not. You know, I don't think that I'm more important than someone else, you know? Um, and so for that reason, I think that I tend to learn a lot from the people around me because I tend to look at every single person in the world um, as a teacher. Uh, you know, I, I look at everyone as my teachers. You know, I learn something from everyone I talk to. And at Chipotle, when I talk to 20 or 25,000 crew members, you better believe I learned a ton from them. They weren't just learning from me. I learned so much from them, you know, about Chipotle for sure, but also about life. You know, they tell me experiences they had that I had not had, you know, uh, you know, growing up in poverty. You know, I didn't grow up in poverty. But when I talked to a lot of people who did grow up in poverty, for example, I'd learned, wow, wow. How did that feel? What was that like? You know, and so I got to really I got to understand people a lot better. And um, in this docu-series I'm doing now, which is called Connected, uh, it's called Connected, A Search for Unity. But it's this uh, docu-series where, because after I left Chipotle, I got my pilot's license and then I got my instrument rating and I got an airplane and I started flying around a lot because that's something I'd always wanted to do. And so I, I, now in this docu-series, I fly around the country and I sit with people from very, very different walks of life and just get to know them and try to understand what it's like to be them and to be in their part of the world and to be with the people they live with and what's it like. And you know, I've, I did one with the natives in Canada, in Alberta. I did one in Northern Philadelphia where the opioid epidemic is absolutely out of control and it's an open air drug market. I did one in the border town of Laredo, Texas, uh, where there's in the border town and the problems you might know that are associated with, uh, with the border, with a lot of movement around the border, cartel activity and so forth. I did one in, in Brunswick, Georgia, where I had the great honor of meeting with the parents of Ahmad Arbery. Um, you know, so Marcus Arbery and Wanda Arbery, that's his mother, or father and mother, and his uncle Gary, and got to spend time with them in just a, a couple months after their son and nephew for the uncle um, was murdered. And, and what is that like? And what's it like to be in Brunswick? And is it a place where there's a lot of racism? And what, and, and, and what after all, does that feel like? I learned so, so much from these people. And what I've learned more than anything is that, and you mentioned it earlier in one of your questions as a quote from my book, that we all want the same thing, Chris. We all want to be seen valued, loved, and understood. That's what we want. And we do a lot of different horseshit to try to make that happen, right? Like some people try to make a billion dollars and buy yachts and buy helicopters and airplanes and, and be like, hey, look, I'm rich. And they hope that when they have all that material stuff, that they'll feel more seen, feel more valued, feel more loved. It doesn't work, okay? Because that's not what people really love. They might come and hang out on your boat, 
But if they, if they love you, it's because they actually, the only th way that someone can love you is if you're vulnerable. How could they love you if you're not really yourself? Then they're just loving that you have a nice haircut or a good shirt or nice skin or they like your eyes or I don't know, you know? But, but for someone to love you, they need to know you. For them to know you, they need, you need to actually allow them to see you, to give enough vulnerability. And they have to have the perception and the presence to look deep into you and see what's really going on with you. And when you start having people in your life who really see you, well, first, it's sometimes a bit scary, I suppose, to let someone really see you. Like they see that you're weak in some ways. They see that you're not always the smartest, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer or whatever. They see that you're not always confident. You know, they see that you say, you know, you, sometimes you say things you don't mean, you know, sometimes you got a temper. But if you really let people see that and you trust that when they see all of it, that they have the capacity to understand you and have compassion for you, which wink, nod is love. Um, then all of a sudden you find that you have loving relationships and you feel that sense of being loved. But, you know, most people, I think, spend the great majority of their life doing things that are not well suited to leading to being loved, valued, seen, understood. And so when I go around the country to these different places and I find all these people from different walks of life, what I find is there's a lot of genius among us. There's so much intelligence and wisdom and knowledge and just and such beautiful stories and lessons to be learned from people all over this country, you know, and, uh, you know, folks who are CEOs and such, we tend to get a lot more airtime. We get to speak more. And this show, what I'm trying to do is actually go out and give a lot more airtime and give the spotlight to, uh, you know, people from different walks of life who might otherwise not be seen or understood and whose wisdom might not be available to, to people generally. So it's really fun, but it also gives you this incredible optimism about what a beautiful and amazing country we live in, despite what the media tries to portray as being a very divided country. Yes, yes, there are some issues. There are some problems. I'm, of course, I'm the first to admit that and to worry about those problems, frankly. But the vast majority of people in the United States are wonderful people who care about each other. They love each other. They want to help each other. And I'm talking about across racial lines, across religious lines, across sexual orientation lines. I don't care. All those things, people love each other. They care about each other. And that's the vast majority position in this country, which is super cool. I'm off topic, but that's cool. No, no, that's great. That's, um, you know, I'm recently now, my new vice is uh, Instagram reels. And if you scroll through those, um, I, I love it. Uh, because you see how incredibly creative people are, you know, when they're not doing whatever their normal life. And they may have like a similar, like one guy's on a skateboard, another girl's on a skateboard. And then, but they're just doing their own versions of their own creativity. And I'm just, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I love it because I'm so blown away by the variety of creativity that humans have and that it's they incredible. want to show it, show it to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, awesome. Um, any dates on when that docuseries is going to come out or where, where yeah. we can find it? Yeah, yeah. So the docuseries. Uh, well, I mean, first, I, I've got a website, loveisfree.com. Okay, so loveisfree.com is where you can find out what's going on. Um, but generally, I think it's gonna be February, March timeframe. It's gonna timeframe. It's gonna air on PBS stations around the United States. Oh, cool. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it should be. I hope hopefully people like it. it I'll tell you, I'll warn you. <clears throat> if it, you know, I don't know if it's going to succeed, right? How would I know? I've never done a docuseries before. But I can tell you this one has no politics in it. It's got no religious bias. I would say it's got no bias. My only bias is I love these people. I want to get to know them. I want to learn from them. And I want America to learn from them because there's so many wonderful lessons to be learned that we should all learn. And I think we'll understand each other better by watching it. I think we'll learn to love each other better by watching it. And that's my goal. And, you know, 
there's no show that does that that I'm aware of. So I'm definitely putting my neck out there, but um, hopefully it'll be worth worth watching. I have to ask, how in the world did you get that that domain, loveisfree.com? That you you had to pay a pretty penny for it. Or... No, no, we didn't. I mean, loveisfree.com. How did we get that domain, Dave? Eighteen hundred dollars. Can you believe it? That's not too bad. I know. I no. And the and, and the the other domains we got were like zero dollars. They were free or close to it or four bucks or something. But yeah, that one we went ahead and splurged eighteen hundred bucks. But loveisfree.com is pretty cool, right? I like wow. it. I'm surprised somebody released it for 1800 bucks or if they were holding on to maybe his GoDaddy had it. Or yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It was, I don't know who had it, but, but it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, I think one more question we'll wrap up Monty. Um, any, any daily rituals you mentioned exercise on a regular basis, but you know, running around all these stores with Chipotle, I'm sure you were a very busy man traveling a lot. Yeah. Um, anything you kept as like a morning or evening ritual or midday ritual, uh, to keep you kind of to have a balance or were you just fine, you know, with a regular travel? And- you know, to be honest, I think I, I, I could have done better to have a daily ritual. I tried to work exercise in and to do that, it, what I realized is it would never happen if I didn't do it first thing in the morning because I just get carried away and something else would seem more important. So I usually wake up and go for a run right away or go for a swim right away. That was the one thing I kind of held on to pretty well, like at least maybe three, four days a week that maybe kept me a bit more sane. I think physical exercise is a really big deal. I think it helps purge your mind, clean you out and bring you a more positive uh you know, positive view to things. I've even seen studies where, where they, they had kids, a group of thousands of kids who did, who made, they made them exercise every morning and a, a, a folk and a group that didn't. And the, and the kids that exercised every morning just had their acumen in school was through the roof. They had, they retained better. They learned faster. I think it's really good. And we all need to exercise more. And it's just very hard to prioritize when everything seems so important, especially, you know, if you're in a CEO role at Chipotle, I mean, I gave my heart and soul to that company. I loved it and I wanted it to be great. And it wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't give my heart and soul to the company. I gave the heart and soul to the 75,000 people there. That's who I loved and cared about. And it takes time to care for 75,000 people, you know, and it was an honor and I loved it. And I would, I loved every minute of it, but it's hard. I mean, it was a lot of energy and I spent so much time working and trying to find out ways to do things better, to lead better, to give a better message. Um, And I just, you know, I worried about that a lot because I never, ever felt that I was good enough. How could I be good enough? I mean, if you have 75,000 people who are in some way affected by your actions, you're never good enough. You know, I mean, if you think you're good enough, are you, (laughs) you know what I mean? If you think, Oh, I'm good enough, man, I'm going to give eight hours a day and that's plenty good. uh, You're probably not giving your, your best. And I do work. I mean, one thing I've worked very, very, very hard. I mean, I'm just, I'm a person who I think people who know me well, I work, I work a lot, but I don't, it doesn't feel like work. I think that's one of the keys. There's a key to life. If you're doing something that really feels like work, look around, there might be something that you're more passionate about that won't feel like work. When I was a lawyer, I worked so hard, but it didn't feel like work. It felt like what I wanted to do. When I was at Chipotle, you know, it, it felt like what I wanted to do. So it didn't feel like work, like a bad thing. It just felt like, man, I want to do this. I'm, I got stuff to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up the, the podcast here. Monty, um, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your tips and tricks and all your wisdom with us. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, where they can find your book, I think you mentioned a website, loveisfree.com. Um, where's the best place they can do that at? Yeah, so just go to loveisfree.com and, uh, and all the information's there. And, uh, and hopefully um, we can stay in touch. So I really appreciate your interest. Yeah, book is live today. Any final tips for listeners before we wrap up? Oh gosh, there's, there's so many. Um, <laughs> don't um, feel pressured. You don't have to. 
Yeah, no, I think it's, I think I put a lot of it in the book. I think the book is, is I think quite concise. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, w- it would have been a lot longer if not for my wonderful editor who helped me decide what to take out. <laughs> um, and uh, cause that was hard for me because I, I'm a person who sometimes thinks everything's important, but it really is important on that note to really find just a few priorities that matter the most and work on those. And I think that man, maybe that's a good place to leave it. Find out the things that you need to, that, that are most important to you and work on those awesome. and everything else seems to fall into place. It's been so great having you on the show, Monty. Again, thank you so much. You bet, Chris. It's been really fun. Thank you. Listeners, we want to say thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.